Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now entered the house of mystery. With your host... Here David Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is here. I complete your sentence, period. Well, I, I, I was going to say that, but then I thought maybe I shouldn't, you know. But I, just saying your name, the crowd runs, rushes the stage. Yes, they, I, yes I'm sure the ratings has dropped. The, the turn up, click, 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 click. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a Stanford and Sun rerun. Let's go. Yeah, everyone's just turning their station. Like, why are we listening, you know? Yeah, move to like something else. They flip on. Well, shut up, Goldberg. Get Bentley on. That's yeah. what they're saying. Yeah, they'll they'll flip to Howard Stern. They're they're over this. Well, let's 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 get them on. Let's say we've got a uh, let's see, we've got a writer, a New York Times best-selling author. He's got a new book out called Forgotten War. So, Mr. Don Bentley, thank you for being here. Absolutely, Alan and Joe. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So now uh, you've got quite the history. I look at this, and it's like former FBI special agent, SWAT team member, Army Apache helicopter pilot. I should be nervous. Um, <laughs> how, well, so why, why did you go from that into writing? Well, my, my wife likes to say that I can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up, and I think there's some truth to that, certainly. Um, I was actually a writer. Uh, long before there, a storyteller, I guess I'd say anyway. Even from a little kid, I remember, you know, reading a book or watching a movie or a TV episode and thinking, man, wouldn't it have been cool if they would have done this instead? And then, 
you know, kind of writing about that and seeing what should the episode. In fact, I think one of the first things I remember writing is like some version of fan fiction for Star Trek or, or something to that extent. And, um, and so as I got older, you know, I started and stopped uh, a couple different novels in high school. I never really got very far, but my senior year in high school, I had a fantastic English teacher. Her name was Jill Easter, and um, she was my AP English teacher. And at one point after we'd had an assignment to write a scene or write a scene with conflict or something like that, she pulled me aside after reading mine, and she said, you know what, I, I think you could really do this. You could be a writer. And so um, it was pretty uh, pivotal encouragement for me, and so I took that to heart and went to college and majored in electrical engineering, as all good writers do. And so <laughs> it still took me a while to um, to get back to the point where I could actually finish a novel and understood what went into it. And then I wrote three novels over the course of 17 years that nobody uh, cared about at all <laughs> until I wrote my debut without sanction that sold in a two-book deal. And so if you discount the three books I wrote that nobody ever read in the 17 years it took me to write them, I'm pretty much an overnight success. Exactly. <laughs> well, pay no attention. Yeah. To take it. Well, yeah. But does it mean something different for you now? Like the three books that you wrote that nobody uh, noticed or paid attention to and, and didn't make you a star, so to speak, Um is, is writing what you do now different for you? It's certainly different than what I did then um, from the standpoint. I get people all the time that say, well, now that you've published some books and I'm actually, before we started recording, I said I am frantically finishing uh, the book that was due Saturday, and it's my eighth book, um, all with, with Tom Colgan, who's an incredible editor, and I'm not just saying that because I'm three days late on this book, but he um, – you know, people ask all the time, well, now that you're, you're published and you've had some amount of success, are you going to go back to those three books and, and try and dig them out? And and I, I kind of look at it as, you know, if you wanted to be a woodworker and you were starting from scratch, chances are your garage would be full of half-built shelves or, you know, dressers that didn't close all the way or, you know, because part of it is learning your craft and learning how to do um, the thing that you're going to ask people to pay you money for at some point. And so each of those books, the reason why they didn't sell is because they weren't good enough to sell. And so I learned things with each of those books and, and finally kind of pulled it all together in my fourth book. But I don't think that they are – and so to answer your question, uh, my process as a, as a writer is certainly different. Uh, from a storytelling perspective, those three books didn't mean – any less to me than the books that I that I write now. I just wasn't a good enough writer yet to tell the story the way it needed to be told for a publisher to be willing to buy it. Well, what do you get out of a book each time you write one? Yes, yeah, so a good friend of mine is Nick Petrie, and he writes um, the Drifter series. And I was talking to him about writing once, and he said, you know, in a really good book, what's happening is the author is trying to answer a question for themselves uh, in that book, in the pages of the book, or work out an issue for themselves. And I think that is, the, for me, um, part of the reason those first three books didn't sell was craft. I think another reason is because I hadn't gotten brave enough yet to try and wrestle with stuff that kept me up at night in the pages of my book. And without sanction, my debut um, certainly did that. And 
in Forgotten War, um, my book that comes out on the 25th of April, takes place during the, the 2021 uh, withdrawal, American withdrawal from Afghanistan and subsequent um, fall of Afghanistan. And so I am a veteran in Afghanistan. I deployed as an Air Cavalry Troop Commander in 2005 and 2006. And there were certainly a whole lot of things I was wrestling and, and friends of mine that were fellow veterans were wrestling with. And all of that uh, made it into Forgotten War. And so I think as a, as a writer, as a novelist, your first job always, always, always is to tell a compelling story, to keep the readers um, turning the page. But I think something beyond the action or fight scenes or things, the thing that makes a reader come back is the emotional appeal of the book. And I think part of that emotional appeal is a sense of veracity so that even that it's fiction, even though that it's fiction, the reader can tell as a writer, are you actually wrestling with things that keep you up or night? And if you are, and if those make it into the pages, I think they resonate with the reader. Well, is that what you said yourself? I become a good writer. The, the gap between those first three and the rest of them now, you know, sort of what changed in you? You became aware of what Nick said. Yeah. But what sort of change in you, skill wise or system wise or mentally wise, that you said, I now have the books that people want to read? Yeah. So, a couple things. When I decided to get serious about writing, um, it was back in uh, 2001 or something like that. I, there's some fundamental things about writing a novel I didn't understand. And so, I took Writer's Digest uh, magazine, had some great online classes that were like the um, structure of a novel and what it, you know, here's how you write a scene, here's how you write a chapter, here's how you write a short story. And I took a little, a a bunch of those classes um, to kind of bridge that gap between where my abilities were and the stories I wanted to tell. And then I had a a friend, I actually went, most, most of my folks um, I know who are, who are professional writers don't have degrees in writing. I don't, I don't want to, um, say that you need to have that. I think there are things you need to learn about your craft, but I was lucky enough to have the GI Bill, and so I went back and got an MFA in writing popular fiction, and one of my classmates uh, was farther down the ro- uh, road than I was, and I was you know, talking with him about why my books didn't sell, and it was back in the in the dark ages when there were these things called malls, and they were there were bookstores in these malls. And so he and I were actually walking through the mall together, and we saw a bookstore, and he was like, come on, let's go in here. And so we did, and he said, point to me three books um, that are on the bestseller list right now that your book should be shelved next to. And I did. And he said, all right, let's get them down. We got them down, and he's like, let's read the first chapter. And so we read the first chapter of each of these three books, and in each one of these books, there was either um, someone was killed, there was a weapon fired or a weapon shown. And so he looked at me and he said, does your book have in the first chapter a body, a weapon, you know, a weapon being fired? And it didn't. And so it wasn't that wasn't so much to say that there's a rule that you have to do this or have to do that, but you have to understand the market that you're selling into because the readers in that market, in that particular genre, have been conditioned to expect some things. And so a reader of one of those books who then read mine might not say, hey, you know what, there's supposed to be a gun in the first chapter and Don doesn't have one. But what they might say instead is, ah, the pacing just feels slow. It doesn't feel like there's much happening here. And and so you have to, if you want to write commercial fiction, you have to be an avid reader of commercial fiction, and you have to understand 
what the reader that you're targeting expects out of a book. You know, another story that I tell, Vince Flynn is my favorite all-time writer. And when my second or third book, I can't remember which, when it didn't sell, I took my favorite Vince Flynn book and I um, broke down each chapter with a note card. And I had different colored note cards for each character. And I didn't have an office at the time. We were living in a small house. And so I taped it to my bedroom wall, uh, much to my wife's chagrin. And so... Um, that was like another huge aha for me because I could see it's like the difference between looking at a house or looking at the blueprints of the house. Then I could see how long, how many chapters does Vince go before he brings Mitch Rapp in again? You know, how many chapters does he go before there's an action sequence? You know, how, and, and so you start to understand how a successful author does what he or she does. And that's what, when people tell me they want to be um, writers or writers in a particular genre, and I say, okay, great, who, who should your book be shelved next to? What are the three books that are sort of like yours, um, but yours is going to be different? And if they can't tell me that or they like to say stuff, well, I don't really have time to read, or then they're probably not going to be uh, good writers. What made you go into writing? And, I mean, was there a particular event? And I don't mean start writing per se, because you said you've always written, but as in go into it as a business and actually want to get published and put it out to the public and sell it. Yeah, I guess for me it was always a natural extension of if I was going to write something, I wanted people to see it. Like I, I wasn't I wasn't writing journals or diaries or something. I was trying to write commercial fiction because I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to tell stories that, that impacted people, that entertained people. And so f for me, it was not, you know, some people write um, just for their own purposes or to work stuff out or something. That, that was never my point. I wanted people to read my stories and hear my stories. And so I always wanted to have my books published because I wanted more people to be able to read the stories that I thought of. Um, as far as it being able to transition into a business, it is really, really, really hard um, to get a publisher to buy your book, and it is exponentially harder um, to be able to make a living as a writer. You know, it's kind of the difference between paying, playing pickup basketball um, outside your house to making the varsity high school team to making the you know varsity college team to playing professional basketball. There are exponential jumps in that pyramid each time you go up, and so for. For me, um, even though I was fortunate enough to sell uh, my first two books in a two-book deal, I was not in any position to be able to write full-time. I kept my full-time job um, even after I got the, the Clancy series. And, and when I talk to people um, who have made it or have or who've made it, who have transitioned into being able to write full-time, the, the common refrain I got from them is usually the work is there before the money is and so from and what they mean by that is that just from a business a dollars and cents perspective very few people get straight out of the gate advances that allow them to actually be a full-time writer and so what you're trying to do is work your day job and write at night in the morning and everywhere else in between and then if you're lucky enough like me to be able to write two series at the same time you're still probably working that day job and figuring it out. And then there comes a fork in the road where you have enough writing work that it takes full time, but it probably doesn't 
pay enough to replace what your full-time job is. And so then you got to do a whole nother set of, of calculus on, am I going to bet on me? Do I feel like there's a big enough runway for my earnings to increase that it could supplement your job? And like I said, each one of those is exponential jumps from one to the other. And very, very few people are able to make kind of that final job where they're writing full-time and they're making a good living at it. It's a, it's a really hard business. And so I was, you know, tongue-in-cheek saying before that I went and majored in electrical engineering, and I'm very glad that I did. And I gave – my daughter wants to be a writer. She's in her, her first year of college, and I encouraged her to take as many writing elective courses as she wanted, but to get a degree in something that could pay the bills because it's very, very difficult – to be able to do that full-time, and it's harder to try and write and, and do it effectively if that's your only gig and that's what you're trying to put food on the table with at the same time you're getting rejection letters and not getting the agent you want and you write three books that don't sell. So it's, it is not for the faint of heart, for sure, but I think I think part of it is, is how you define success as well, is that you know if, you're, if your idea of success is – I want more people to be able to read and enjoy the stories I want to tell. There are a whole lot of different venues to be able to do that that don't necessarily have to have you quitting your day job and trying to make it as a writer full-time. Well, you, that's really an interesting answer, and I, you mentioned the phrase, of course, many times, readers and commercial fiction. Do you think about the readers as you're writing, and especially the question I'm sure you always get, do you think about them when you're writing the well-known series books, the Clancy books? Yeah, I think about, so my job is to create a product that people want to buy, and that product is my book. And so there's a, if you look at anything, um, writing, whatever it is, there are Venn diagrams, right? If you look at, if you take writing out and say, what do I want to do when I grow up? Well, there's this circle that's all your passions. There's another circle of things that pay the bills, and hopefully there's an intersection between the two where you can do something you enjoy, that you can actually make a living at, right? And so writing is the same thing. You could write a book, you know, say I want, you know, I really like wizards who are in the military and part of SEAL Team 6 or something, right? That might be a really interesting story for me that I want to tell. The readership for that is probably not that great. And so then you have to make a choice as a writer. And, like, what what is your goal? Is it to tell the story that you have in mind and you're okay with however it does commercially or do you want to look at the market and say hey I want to try and make a living at this and so what is not copying and saying hey everybody else is doing this but what is the niche of readers that I'm targeting because you know my my editor Tom Colgan likes to say that when it, when you when it is your time to debut if you're writing commercial fiction what you have to do is something that's the same but different and so Brad Taylor's a good friend of mine. He writes fantastic books, uh, the Pike Logan series. And um, I write in the same genre. And so hopefully in a book short store, my Matt Drake books, hopefully Forgotten War, would be shelved next to Brad's next book. But I'm never going to write a better Brad Taylor book than Brad writes. And so what I have to do is say – what can I write that is similar from the standpoint that it belongs on the shelf next to Brad in the same genre, but it's different in that it's not a knockoff Brad book because I'm never going to write a better Brad book than Brad does. And so I absolutely think um, from the perspective of 
what are my readers looking for and what are, because I read so extensively in my genre, what are other people in my genre doing and, and does what I'm writing, does it fit that same but different rule? So I think about that very much in a broad aspect and because, going back to the reading thing, because I read so extensively in a genre, I'm a fan first. I know what I expect in a book, and so subconsciously it helps me figure out what should be in my book to attract fans like me. Now, I don't go into a book and say, I need formulaically these eight things to happen because you know that's what happened in the last Clancy book or the last Matt Drake book or whatever, but because I steep myself in the genre that I want to sell into, I understand, hopefully, at kind of an intrinsic level what the reader expects as well. And so I think you have to make that decision as a writer. Are you trying to be commercially successful or are you trying to – you just want to express kind of the creative urge or tell the story that you have inside you and you're fine if it sells or it doesn't sell? So neither of those answers are wrong, but you can't do one and expect the other and then be disappointed if that doesn't happen. So someone goes into the – what used to be called bookstores, they're about to reach for the Brad Taylor book, but their hand zips over to the Don Bentley book. Yeah. What are they what are they expecting in a Don Bentley book? Yes, yeah, so when I when I sat down to write my fourth book, I really did uh a deep dive into my last three books and then paid more attention to that same but different and said, Okay, so what can I bring with the Matt Drake books that isn't already out there? And so the first thing I decided to do is, um, I've said before, Nelson DeMille is, um, is a huge influence on my writing, and he was kind enough to blurb Forgotten War, which I'm very grateful for. And his John Corey, he, all his books are fantastic, but I love his John Corey series. The first one of those is called Plum Island. It's about a, um, a New York detective that is very witty, very funny. It's written in, in first person, so John Corey is the one telling the story. And when I finished that book, I said to my wife, I'm like, I would read about John Corey going to the gas station because he's so funny. It's so much fun to be with him. And when I looked in my genre, there are very few people who write first person. Brad does. He actually writes um, first person, third person. But there are very few people that do that and fewer still that write that kind of funny, witty character. And I thought, you know, I can do that. And so that's who Matt Drake is. The second thing is when I looked across the genre, I said, man, there are a lot of CIA guys and girls. There are a lot of special forces folks. There are a lot of assassins. And so what I decided to do was make Matt what's called a case officer, which is a fancy word for, for being a spy. But instead of working for the CIA, I picked a different organization called the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it's an organization whose reporting structure goes up through the military, and it does a lot of the same jobs as the CIA. And so there, there are these great built-in turf wars between DIA and CIA. And what Matt does as a case officer is very similar to what I did as an FBI agent. I recruited what we call um, sources and what in the intelligence community Matt would call assets. And so I thought, well, that's another thing that I can bring um, to this genre. And the third and final one is that once I got out of the FBI, I spent the next 10 or 11 years until I started writing full-time working for companies who 
um, designed products and marketed marketed things primarily to the special operations and, and intelligence community. And so the guys I worked with were all from the Ranger Regiment. Um, I got to know them very well. I got to understand how they looked at the world and why it was different and what that meant. And so I made Matt a, a member of the Ranger Regiment. And the, the Ranger Creed fi um, figures very, very heavily and without sanction. And it's something that still guides uh, Matt's life even in Forgotten War. And so those were all choices that I made to try and give people something that's the same but different. So when you read Forgotten War, um, Matt Drake is, you know, it's a witty first-person protagonist character. He's a family man. He loves his wife. Uh, he has a, a child on the way, and he's a case officer. His job is to run and recruit um, assets. When you get to Forgotten War and you have basically a current event-based, I mean, really current event-based book, how much of that do you rip from the headlines for real, uh, predictive of what might happen next, uh, in your writing, yeah, so, in your research. I thought you're a researcher. Yeah, absolutely. So Hostile Intent, which was my last Matt Drake book, uh, I actually wrote um, before Ukraine invaded Russia, or excuse me, before Russia invaded Ukraine. And and so um, I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to throw, show like a bigger force-on-force um, -force military um, action on European soil. And so... Right before um, the book came out, uh, Russian invaded Ukraine, and so that was not something I was trying to beat the headlines on, but it, it was something that I you know, envisioned as a military officer, you're taught to think like the enemy and to view the, the battlefield um, through his or her eyes, and so it, that's a very useful skill to have as a novelist. With Forgotten War, it takes place during the 2021 uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it had already happened, and I wanted to use that, especially some of the significant events like the, the fall of Kabul, the capture of Bagram, um, the horrible suicide bombing that claimed 13 lives um, at the end of the withdrawal. I wanted to use those as kind of a metronome to pace the story and to have the story built around it. And so what I had to do was take some liberties, though, with the timing of those things, because a lot of those like, for instance, the occupation of Bagram, the fall of Kabul, that all of those things happened very quickly together, and I needed to space them out a little bit more in Forgotten War. And so I, I, this is my first book where at the end of it I have kind of an author's note where I go through some of the things that, that I did that were different, even though they were real, and I also um, I, I wanted to use uh, the, the, the bombing that killed those 13 people as part of Forgotten War but not have it... Um, to, to, I wanted to still give it the reverence um, that it was due. And so it was a really hard book to write for a lot of reasons, but um, one of those being the way to thread the needle where this isn't, this isn't um, nonfiction and it's not historical fiction. It's my job is to tell a really compelling story that keeps people turning pages, but I also wanted to root it in that, that time and have the conversations um, between veterans, have the things they're trying to figure out, have the actual events, be as close to real as possible. And so uh, that was that was super difficult in Forgotten War, but the, the reviews I'm getting from readers is stuff like, you know, there's an emotional core here that I'm not used to in this gen genre. You know, this book has heart. It really resonated with me. And those are things, like I said, are not writerly words. They're reader words, which are great words. But what they're saying is, 
hey, maybe I accomplished what I was trying to do because I took this genre and put something that's a little different in it, and readers have been resonating with that veracity. When you're writing a book like Forgotten War, which can be highly political, do you, do you cancel yourself or do you in any way when you're trying to write your books? Do I things that you don't write? Do you do things that you don't write because of they may stir up emotions mm. on the political divide or spectrum? Yeah, so for Forgotten War, I, I made a really a a point to not try and bring politics into it, and so I don't talk about the administration. I don't talk about Republicans or Democrats. I just talk about here's the event that happened, and here's how people are reacting from it. I think personally, I try and stay away from politics of writing. I, I feel like it, people get inundated with that every single day through a thousand different things. And I think sometimes people just want to read a good story and they don't want to get beat up or, or have an author preach at them from one political aspect or another. And so I try and stay very apolitical in all my writing. In fact, I just read a review of Forgotten War. And um, one of the things the reviewer said is something I've seen echoed in other reviews is how thankful they were that I didn't shy away from um, the debacle that was the Afghanistan withdrawal, but I didn't try and throw blame behind one political party or another. And and that was certainly something I set out to do. So are you conscious of, of how you write violence and sex on the page? Yeah, I don't. So I don't I don't write sex. Um and as as far as violence, yeah, I I don't when I, when I write a, a scene, I want it to have the visceralness that um, that I think that I think the scene, whether it's a fight scene, whether it's a gunfight, whatever, that it has the visceralness that makes it real um, and, and not like a Marvel movie, right? And so I think I think there are all different um, there are all different shades or degrees of storytelling and so if you have you know a fast and furious movie on one end of the scale and something like slow horses on the other side of the scale um i try and go somewhere in in the middle of that and so i want i want the violence to be something that is visceral and is reflective of, of you know my experience or things that i think would resonate with the reader but I also I don't celebrate that I don't I don't do you know this isn't pulp fiction or something like that I'm not doing gore just to gore I'm not doing things for shock value I don't write horror and so it's certainly something I think about um, and, and I and I spend a lot of time on those scenes not you know not to um, not to have violence for violence sake but have it and have it be um, Necessary for the story, you know, when when you talk about uh, fight scenes, for instance, the two, my kind of two bookends that I look at a lot are Lee Child and Brad Taylor. And so if you look at Lee Child's Jack Reacher fight scenes, they are very basic from the standpoint of Jack Reacher's a big guy and he headbutts people, he kicks them in the knees and he uses his massive elbows. But But those scenes are extremely effective and they're very blunt, choppy not choppy from a bad standpoint, but like like your boxing, you know, lots of crosses and jabs that just smack you in upside the head, and they work very, very well. On the other side, I think Brad Taylor's scenes are very, very technical. You know, Brad was a commando. I'm sure he's done thousands of hours of combatives, and you can tell that in his scenes. They're much more 
of you know if you if you look at the at boxing at one end of the scale and you know the wushu kung fu on the other side brads are are more like that they're pretty they're very technique laced but when you read brad's scenes you don't get bogged down in the details he's not telling you and then i moved his hand two inches to the left to do this and right they still flow very well they still add to the book rather than detract it and so scenes um, with violence I look at that pretty closely um, because it, it might have been Nick. Somebody smart said that you got to do the slow things fast and the fast things slow. And so when you when you do a fight scene that is in real life usually very quickly is over very quickly, you want to slow that down so it has the most emotional impact to the reader, but you also can't bog it down so that as they're reading it, they're like, oh, for the love of God, just throw this fist and be done with it. And so that's something I do pay a lot of attention to. So the Tom Clancy novels, um, how did that happen for you, and, and how do you think that's changed you as a writer? Yeah, so I've been very fortunate. I have I, I tell people there are a lot of Toms in this story. So the Tom Clancy is one Tom. The second Tom is my editor, Tom Colgan. And so the book I'm finishing now is called Weapons Grade. It's my fourth Clancy book, and it's my eighth book total that I've done with Tom Colgan. So Forgotten War is my fourth Matt Drake book, Weapons Grades, my fourth Clancy book. And so um, Tom Colgan's edited everybody from Lee Child to Janet Ivanovich, and he edited Tom Clancy when Tom was still alive. And then after Tom passed, um, the Clancy estate came to, to Tom Colgan and to Putnam and said, hey, we want Tom Clancy's legacy to live on, and so we would like you to bring in writers to continue that series. And so... Every time a Tom Clancy book of mine comes out, there's at least one uh, entertaining person on social media who says, Tom Clancy is dead. How dare you be profiting from his name? And I'm like, first off, I am not the one profiting from his name. And secondly, I look at it the same way that George Lucas created this amazing universe called Star Wars, but he certainly doesn't write all or even most of the stories in it. He invites people to come in uh, when he owned it and whoever Disney, whoever owns it now, and says, we have this amazing universe rich with characters and stuff come in and cr continue to create here. And so that's, and, and from my perspective, what those of us who write for legacy um, series like that get to do. And so when I finished the second book in my Matt Drake series that was called The Outside Man, um, Tom Colgan asked me if I would be interested in writing in the Clancy universe too. And so two and a half years ago, when I said yes, he knew that there that this year was coming, and so this year I actually have three books that are coming out. So Forgotten War comes out, uh, my Matt Drake book, fourth Matt Drake book, comes on on April 25th, and then um, Flashpoint, my third Tom Clancy book, comes out. Uh, I think it's May 23rd, and then Weapons Grade, the book that I'm finishing now, my fourth Tom Clancy book, comes out in September. And so in order to make this year happen, two and a half years, I started writing a book every five months, and I'd alternate between one of my Matt Drake books and a Clancy book. And so it's been, um, Tom is an incredible editor to write with, and, and to have him working on both series has been very, very beneficial. And, and now um, that's also gotten me the opportunity in, in 2024 I will be uh, taking over the um, Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series from Kyle Mills. And so after I turn in weapons grade here, hopefully in the next day or two, uh, I will transition to my first uh, Mitch Rapp book. And so all that was 
I'm sure had a, a lot to do with the fact that I wrote the Clancy books and those resonated with readers and the Clancy books came from the Matt Drake books. And so each one of those steps uh, or each one of those were kind of stepping stones to the next thing, as it were. Are you worried about that overshadowing your own creation, your own writing? Uh, I'm worried about it for a lot of different reasons. Um, Josh Hood is a friend of mine, and he also has written uh, for the Legacy series. He writes in the Jason Bourne universe. And I heard Josh once describe it as writing for the Legacy series is kind of like your dad tossing you the keys to his whatever 60-something Stingray Corvette, and you want to drive that thing as fast as you can, but you also want to bring it back to the garage without any new dings in it. And so... You know, you want to, when you get to walk into a legacy series, um, you want to write it and, and continue to expand it and do things that will um, that will resonate with the readers, but you also don't want to be the guy that's known as the person who, um, who crashed the Clancy series. And so um, from my own writing perspective, working with the Clancy ones, has been easier both because I've had Tom as kind of the gate, the the um, the uh, the guardrails to um, bring me back if I've gone too far one way or the other. And he reads my Matt Drake books, uh, like Forgotten War, and he reads my Clancy books. And it's a I have a, a buddy that's um, a Golden Glove fighter. He he boxed for Penn State when he was in college, and he said the purpose of having a referee in a boxing match is so that you don't ever have to worry about hurting the other guy. You swing as hard as you can and do everything, and it's the, it's the referee's job to keep him safe and keep you safe. And I think a good editor is that same way. It allows you to go crazy when you're writing the book, knowing that that editor is going to be the one who brings the book back into line and kind of keeps you safe. And so um, the books are very different. I'm not worried about it overshadowing from the fact of um, a Vince Flynn book becoming a Matt Drake book, certainly. And on that side of the house, Emily Bessler has been the editor for every single Mitch Rapp book um, when Vince was still alive, all the way through um, Kyle's run. And she's still going to be the editor. She will be the guardrails for that series to make sure I don't drive that car off the cliff. Um, from a from a purely production standpoint, I'm like I said, I'm I'm blessed enough to have a number of different things um, that I have the opportunity to work on, and so I don't know after I finish this Mitch Rap book which one I will um, work on next. It could be another Matt Drake book, it could be a Tom Clancy book, it could be a standalone book as well. Um, I'll, I'll have to figure that out <laughs> sometime in the next. A uh, couple of months, I guess. But right now, like I said, I'm concentrated on just finishing weapons grade and then transitioning to my first Mitch Rap book. Nice to have options. Yeah. So which of your characters do you feel like you you are the most of you or is in? Yeah. So when um, when I was doing press for Without Sanction, I had an interviewer ask me. It was a radio interview, and and she's like, "Are you Matt Drake?" And I said, "You know, I'm." I'm absolutely not Matt Drake, but I've stood in the same room with men who could be. And so um, that's absolutely true. Where I've been, you know, we, we talked a little bit about my my crazy background. And, and what I draw from that really isn't as much uh, my personal experiences as the men and in some cases women that I've been able to rub shoulders with and see the world through their um, eyes, understand a little bit more what they do and stuff. I think Matt, um, from a personality standpoint, is probably 
closer to me. He probably sees the world a lot the same way I do, um, for sure. But I think everybody who writes, writes, their protagonists are a better version of themselves or a more, in this genre anyway, or a more you know, idealized um, version of themselves. And so I feel very close to him um, because he certainly got a lot of me in and because since I write him as a first person, that means Matt tells the story and that voice, um, that's one of the benefits of writing first person is that you feel very close to that protagonist because they're the ones who are telling you the story. So I certainly feel closer to him um, than any other character. Well, tell me about your relationship with your antagonists, the bad guys. How do you make them and how do you experience them? Yes, yeah, so that's changed uh, over the course of eight books. Another thing that Nick says is that your, as a writer, your process probably changes with every book because you learn more about yourself, you learn more about the books that you're trying to write. And so I know a lot of people come up with the protagonists and, and have that in mind, or excuse me, the antagonist, and have that person in mind as they're crafting um, the series or the book and, and that everything is a reaction to the, pro, to the antagonist because the antagonist is the one who is putting roadblocks in front of the main character or protagonist. I don't really work that way. Um, when I write or when I start a book, I usually have an idea um, that the, I, I, I like the book um, Saving the Cat that's, that's written for screenplay writers, but I think it's great. And there's a version for novelists too, but I use the screenplay version because it breaks down in a three-act structure. Here are the beats that you're supposed to have. And, and they, um, the person who wrote it was what you call a plotter, where he comes up with those beats before he writes the book. I don't do that. I usually, I don't ever know what the story's going to be about um, until I finish it, and then I go back and look at those beats and tighten it as I go. But I usually have an idea of the inciting incident, and the inciting incident is in the first act, what happens to take you from the character, the, the protagonist from the world that they're in to the world that the story's going to be about, right? And so if you... If you think the, you know, kind of an iconic story that almost everybody knows, the Star Wars story, if you think that the, the inciting incident is that moment where Luke Skywalker goes from being just a, a whatever kind of a water farmer or whatever he is to getting pulled into the bigger story, that he might be a Jedi Knight, that there's, you know, R2-D2 shows up and shows him a video and all that. And so I usually have some idea what the inciting incident is, and then I write from that, and the antagonist obviously usually causes the inciting incident or has something to do with it, but for me, the antagonist is usually the last thing fleshed out, and oftentimes their point of view is the last thing I write in the book because what I found as a writer is that if I write, if I write the antagonist's point of view ahead of time, number one, I don't know what the story is as I'm writing it, and so... Oftentimes, his or her point of view will wander off, and and it won't match what the actual story is when I'm done. Or there's as you're writing the first draft, what you're really doing is telling yourself the story, and then in subsequent drafts you cut that down into there are things that you need to know as a writer in order to write that book, but not all of those make it into the story. They're not important to the reader necessarily. And for me, if I try and write that antagonist ahead of time a lot of his or her scenes tend to be things that are important for me as a writer to know, but not necessarily important 
for the story or important for the reader to use. And so I usually don't get a sense, the full sense of the antagonist until the book is done, or until the first draft of the book is done. How important is the setting to you, and, and how do you use it? Yeah, setting is is um, very important, and I usually have an idea of where where I want the book to take place um, before I write it. The um, Forgotten War takes place in, in really three different locations. It takes I live north of um, Austin, Texas, and I have been here for the last 11 years, but have been I first came to Texas um, in 2000 when I was stationed at Fort Hood in the military. And so Matt Drake lives in Austin, and at least part of every book takes place in Austin or the, the surrounding area there. And so I knew part of it was going to be in Austin. I knew part of it was going to be in Afghanistan. And then there's a chunk of it that takes place in North Carolina. And so um, Austin has some very um, unique things that make it a interesting place, and I try and put those in the book. In Afghanistan, I really wanted – I worked hard on that because I wanted to give – a whole lot more people have been to Austin than will probably ever be go to Afghanistan, at least my U.S. readers. And so I spend a lot more time trying to flesh out what is Afghanistan like to the men and women who – have fought there, why is, are parts of it important to the reader, what are the things that are unique about it that aid in the telling of the story. And so there are a lot of that in Forgotten War, uh, for sure. Wow, pretty amazing. So, uh, of course, Forgotten War is out now, and you've got a couple more books coming up, or you're trying to finish one, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what's coming up next, then? Yes, yeah, so Forgotten War isn't out quite yet. It comes out a week from today. It comes out on the 25th of um, April. And then, um, like I said, I'm, this year's kind of crazy for me in that I have three books come out. So Forgotten War comes out on the 25th of April. Um, Flashpoint, my third Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. book, comes out, I think it's the 23rd of May. And then Weapons Grade, that'll be my fourth Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan book, uh, comes out in September. I think it's either the 3rd or 5th of September. So other than that, I'm really not doing much this year. No. Yeah, get busy. Get busy. <laughs> just sloughing away. The guy's just Stop doing that yard work. Yeah. No, he's just laying around having cocktails. <laughs> doing nothing. Then his wife did the writing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we really appreciate being on the show. And, of course, uh, what can we say? Our, our guest has been uh, the great Don Bentley. Thank you for being here. Abs I'm Don Bentley. I don't know about the great part, but thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. Thanks, Don. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.